Okay, so we are back in uh, in Revelation tonight, and um, oh, he's just coming back in. Uh, let's give a big thank you to Ted Latusik for cooking our supper tonight. Appreciate that. Good job, Ted. Um, okay, so tonight we are continuing along with the uh, the travel log, I guess you'd say, of the seven churches of Revelation, and we had covered a number of them. Uh, last uh, last time, and again, if you if you'll remember, these these seven churches are not churches like us, one building. Um, these are letters being written to these areas, which would have been made up of many house churches, and the letters would have been carried to those towns and then distributed uh, to the people. But but it's a it's a reference to the general things that are going on in that area. And so, um, the last one that we had covered um, was. That of Sardis. Here we go. Um, we had we had covered Thyatira, and and so uh, and so we were up to to Sardis with our last one, and that gives you a, a good picture of um, the ruins of Sardis, looking up towards uh, the Acropolis of of Sardis. I'm going to try this and see if my Laser pointer will will show you. Um, you can sort of see it. This is the main temple area, and then you followed this trail up here, and you could just see this tower uh, right over in this area. This was the main fortress area, so th- you know that was huge. It was way up there, um, and the um, Sardis was originally designed to be a fortress. Um, it was in the 6th century, it was one of the absolute most powerful cities in all the world. But by the time we get to the time of John, when by the time we get to Roman times, it had declined uh, significantly. But part of the reason it was such a powerful and wealthy city was because of that Acropolis. Uh, if you can imagine being an army trying to take that, not going to happen. And as a result, there was no one that could ever defeat them. So they became very powerful, very, very, very wealthy. Um, it did have a, a Roman theater and a stadium, so it had at least some culture. But the problem with Sardis is that they had capitulated. They had um, they had given themselves over to uh, a lot of heresy. So let's look here in um, beginning with Revelation chapter 3. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Sardis. This is the message from the one who has the sevenfold spirit of God and the seven stars. I know all the things you do and that you have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Now wake up. Strengthen what little remains, for even what is left is at the point of death. Your deeds are far from right in the sight of God. Go back to what you heard and believed at first. Hold to it firmly and turn to me again. Unless you do, I will come upon you suddenly as unexpected as a thief. Yet even in Sardis, there are some who have not soiled their garments with evil deeds. They will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. All who are victorious will be clothed in white. I will never erase their names from the book of life, but I will announce before my father and his angels that they are mine. Anyone who is willing to hear should listen to the spirit and understand what the spirit is saying to the churches. So, um, you know, here we have a church that is trying to maintain the outward vestiges of Christianity, that they're supposed, they're trying to act spiritual, 
but they're inwardly dead. They, they have uh, given themselves over to this heresy, to these di- uh, different beliefs. They have, they have um, compromised so much with their culture that they no longer reflect what Christ was calling them to be. But not everyone. There is a remnant. There are some who have not given themselves over. And, and so the hope here, as John is writing this, is that these few that are left can bring the others back, that he can help turn them around and, uh, and restore them back to what they once were. Um, when Jesus says that he will clothe them in white, white throughout Revelation is a symbol of purity and righteousness. So, you know, the idea here is, is um, those who he says he clothes in white means that, that they, are, they have been found pure. They've been found spotless. And, you know, it's interesting he says that he will not wipe their names out of the Lamb's book of life. Which is implying if you don't turn around, your name will be blotted out. Um, that's not an idle threat. Uh, that's, that's, you know, a pretty serious thing. He's saying, you know, you, you accepted me, you, you, you loved me, your name is there. But in essence, what he's referring to is apostasy, that they have turned their backs on Christ, whom they once loved. Um, so Sardis is in a, a pretty bad situation at that point. This just shows you uh, some of the other pictures of Sardis. This is from the Acropolis. Uh, and Acropolis just means, you know, raised area, um, looking down towards the, the lower city where um, some of the the um, all of the government buildings would have been up on the Acropolis. The, the temples and the, the markets and the everyday places would have been what was down low. Uh, one of the most famous places in Sardis would have been the bathhouse, the, the gymnasium. And that's where all the business was done. Um, you know, at the at the end of the day or, or even in the middle of the day, the uh, the men especially would gather um, in the bathhouses and, and, you know, that's where they would conduct their business. It's similar to business deals being done on the golf course now. Uh, that's where they gathered. That's where most business was done. Another uh, another look at the bathhouse um, in the temple area. Now, this is the remains of the temple of Artemis. Um, which is uh, Diana, uh, another the other name for it. Um, now, obviously, this temple is not as big as um, the temple that was in Ephesus, the temple of Artemis that was in Ephesus. But what I want you to see, again, I, I hope you can see the, the, the laser um, dot here. This pillar right here is human-sized. That's, that's about a six-foot pillar. So you get the scale, the grandeur. If you take that one little one right there, that that's the size of, a, of an average person, and look at how big these columns are in comparison, you get an idea of just how massive this temple was. Uh, and it was not the biggest. It was, a, it was pretty small in comparison to, um, to Ephesus. Okay. The next one on our list, then, is the city of Philadelphia. Um, Philadelphia is in modern-day Alashir in Turkey, and it is um, about 30 miles west-northwest of uh, Sardis. The city that existed in the time of Revelation 
uh, is pretty much destroyed. There, there's just not much left. It's, it's underground. Um, but the modern-day city has built up over it and, and has covered it up. So you can see, um, you know, these little bit of ruins. You've just got sheep grazing there among the ruins, which are out in the middle of a field. And, and really, that's about it. Most of the ancient city has not even been excavated. Um, it's, it's just kind of there. So there's really not much to see. The only thing that there is to see is this place, which is the ancient Byzantine uh, church, which is built approximately where one of the main house churches was uh, during John's time. So those massive walls, um, and then you see the, the white tower in the background and the gardens around, uh, all of that is part of a Byzantine era uh, church that was built there in Philadelphia, but that's the, really the only thing that you've got left that is any indication of the early Christians from John's time. Okay, so let's take a look at um, at this city. Then, verse seven, write this letter to the angel of the church in Philadelphia. This is the message from the one who is holy and true. He is the one who has the key of David. He opens doors and no one can shut them. He shuts doors and no one can open them. I know all the things you do, and I have opened a door for you that no one can shut. You have little strength, yet you have obeyed my word and did not deny me. Look, I will force those who belong to Satan, those liars who say they are Jews but are not, to come and bow down at your feet. They will acknowledge that you are the ones that I love. Because you have obeyed my command to persevere, I will protect you from the great time of testing that will come upon the whole world to test those who belong to this world. Look, I am coming quickly. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take away your crown. All who are victorious will become pillars in the temple of my God, and they will never have to leave it. And I will write my God's name on them, and they will be citizens in the city of my God, the new Jerusalem that comes down from heaven from my God, and they will have my new name inscribed upon them. Anyone who is willing to hear should listen to the Spirit and understand what the Spirit is saying to the churches. So... um, Philadelphia was a very important center for both the military and the economy. Um, It was referred to in these ancient times as the gateway to the east. Uh, Extremely important place. There was a huge agricultural industry. Um, There was also great economic prosperity. But one of the reasons that the ancient city doesn't exist anymore is because this area was also extremely prone to earthquakes. And, and so they had some extremely devastating earthquakes in this time that absolutely destroyed uh, the old city. Um, you know, Philadelphia was remarkable for all the temples that it had and for, uh, and for all these big religious festivals that brought people all over. Uh, the main god that was worshipped in Philadelphia was Dionysius, who is the god of wine. Uh, and this is because of the huge uh, vineyard industry that grew up around Philadelphia. So it was maybe that's why it's the city of brotherly love. Everybody loved each other. They were all having wine. Now, Jesus talks to them about he's opened the door. And and this is what this is referring to is the opportunity for great missionary activity. Uh, because Philadelphia was a city of uh, such incredible importance militarily and economically because of all these trade routes that ran through it. The people of Philadelphia had the opportunity to spread the gospel far and wide. I mean, obviously, they didn't have social media back then, 
Um, you know, they didn't have television, radio. We, so the, the way that new ideas were usually spread was by people visiting new cultures and new places. They would go to the Agora, the marketplace. They would listen to these ideas, and then they would go back to their hometowns, and they would share them. So, in essence, what, what Jesus is saying through John is, look, all of these people come to you on a regular basis, and you have an incredible opportunity to share with them this idea which will then spread out from you as they go back to wherever they live. Does it sound familiar? <laughs> you know, I mean, think about us here at, at Good News. That's, that's exactly what we are. We're placed in this area where we have people from all over the country literally coming to us on a constant basis. And if you can have an impact here, then when they return back to their homes in various places, then you've spread the ministry of good news all over the country, all over the world. Um, you know, what, what a great concept. So we're, we're in a similar uh, opportunity as Philadelphia here. We just got to make sure that we take advantage of it. One of the key verses of, um, of this section of Philadelphia is, is when he says, I will protect you from the great time of testing that will come upon the whole world to test those who belong to this world. Now, this is one of the um, primary verses that is used talking about a pre-tribulation rapture. The idea that Jesus will return to take the church out of the world before a great tribulation starts. Um, However, that's not at all what this verse is talking about. Um, This verse really has nothing to do with physical safety. Um, The Greek language makes it fairly clear that Christ is not promising physical protection. He's promising spiritual protection. And in fact, if you look at the whole context of what's going on around it, he's saying, don't let anyone take your crown away from you. Persevere. Stay strong. So when he's saying, I will protect you from the great time of trial... What he's saying is, if you stay committed to me, I will give you the strength to stand up to persecution. He's not saying, I will spare you from persecution. And as a matter of fact, what this is referencing, since we we talked before about that we know that John the Apostle wrote this, if we look in John's Gospel, in John chapter 17, uh, John records Jesus' great pastorly prayer his priestly prayer. John 17, verse 15. Hear the words of Jesus. He said, I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but to keep them safe from the evil one. Okay? That's what's being referenced here. It is not a promise of protection. It is not a promise that the church will avoid persecution. It's not a promise that the church will avoid tribulation. Um, In fact, you can't find a single promise about that in all of Scripture. And usually it's just the opposite, that um, the church is going to have to undergo persecution. But you won't be alone. That's exactly right. That's the promise. And, you know, back in these days, when people believed in the idea of multiple gods, this idea of persecution for them, was very much a, a spiritual issue. 
which is if worshipers of this God could beat me up and kill my friends and kill my family, then their God must be stronger than my God. Okay, that was that was the mindset in in those days. Uh, every single war that was fought in the ancient world was literally a holy war to prove whose God was stronger. And they believed that, you know, if our country conquered your country, it wasn't because of our army. It was because of our God conquered your God. So now you have to worship our God. That was the mindset. And so what Jesus is saying here is not that you'll face persecution, but that when you do face persecution, it doesn't mean that I've been beaten. It doesn't mean their gods are stronger. Uh, in fact, just the opposite. I am strong enough to save you spiritually, and I will protect you from, from this time of testing spiritually. But if you look at church history, you can definitely see Christians have not been protected physically. All right, what, what would you like to... It's not going to happen. Um, you know, the, the church is not going to be taken out of, uh, to avoid any kind of tribulation. Um, I think maybe next week I will probably get to discussing some of the various views on uh, the rapture and millennialism. And I'll certainly share my thoughts on it, but I'll, I'll share some of the, the other uh, opinions and views on it as well. And, and we'll talk a little bit about that because we'll get to some of the verses that specifically have been used to address that. Um, but just kind of a sneak preview of coming attractions, uh, I don't believe in a secret rapture. Uh, I don't believe Scripture supports the idea of the church being taken out, um, you know, a la left behind and, and that whole idea. I think when Christ comes back, that's it. You know, he, he's going to come back and we're going to face him right there. I almost like the idea of the rapture better, um, you know, <laughs> because you get another chance. <laughs> you know, I mean, honestly, I, I, I do. I like the theory of the rapture better because, in essence, you know, the kind of the idea behind it is, you know, Christ takes the church out. But then, you know, it's the final wake up call. That's referring to the final the final judge. Yeah. When Christ returns. So, yeah, so we'll look at those, you know, really specifically uh, when we get to them. One will be taken and the other left behind. You know, I, I'm glad you asked about that because that, that is one of the most common ones used. Um, Jesus's words in Matthew where he says, you know, one is taken, one is left behind. He gets several examples. Um, that's a case of, of us in the in the more recent Modern uh, European influenced world missing completely the Jewish uh, implications there, not just Jewish, really the ancient ones in their mindset. The one who is taken is taken away to judgment. The one who is left behind is the one who gets to enjoy the fruits of the king's arrival. So, you know, here we, we think the one who is taken is like somebody gets raptured out. But in the original scripture it's just the opposite. The one who is taken is carted off to judgment. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Um, so, you know, that's that's the way they they viewed that scripture. The one who is taken is the one who is um, in trouble. The one who is left behind is the one who gets to enjoy the arrival of the king and all the benefits uh, thereof. It, it's not a real common um, 
thing unless you've actually studied the ancient scripture and the and the and the customs, you know, the way they would have viewed the the ancient world. Um, and, and it's the other view is the more common one in our modern world. So, yes, sir. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Yes. Right. Right, right, yeah. Jesus begins that priestly prayer and John specifically praying for his group. But then he, he begins to, to broaden the focus of that prayer, looking at all who will come to know him because of the witness of this small group that's around him. And so, yeah, so when he's praying uh, for their protection, you know, he says very clearly, I, I'm not asking that you take them out of the world. I'm not asking that they avoid tribulation. Uh, I'm just asking that you protect them from the evil one. And, that, and that's an important distinction. Um, we actually, when we pray the, the old version of the, um, the Lord's Prayer, we say, you know, but deliver us from evil. That's incorrect. It should be deliver us from the evil one. Because that's what the, the Greek actually says. I mean, that's how we should pray it. Um, Jesus never said that we would be delivered from evil. A- again, just the opposite. Um, Jesus never even told us to pray that we would be delivered from evil. We're, and that's our habit. You know, Lord, protect me. Don't let me go through anything bad. Um, but that's never promised in Scripture. But instead, that we pray that we would be able to stand strong in the midst of the bad stuff. Which is a very different way of looking at it. You know, if we're praying for deliverance from evil, that's not something that God ever promised us. We're going to have to face evil. We're going to have to face bad stuff in this world until Christ returns. But if we're praying for strength in the midst of it, that's that's an entirely different focus. And one that God does promise repeatedly that he will always be with us, even no matter how bad it seems. And really, you know, like I said from week one, that's what Revelation's all about. If you just want to boil it down to it, it's that God's going to be with us no matter how bad it looks. Yes, ma'am. Yes. Oh, the, the verse where it talks about us meeting him in heaven, that's in Thessalonians, where Paul says when Christ returns, uh, we'll meet him in the air. He says, you know, the dead will rise, and then we, you know, those of us who are still alive, you know, he gives an order to it, uh, and he says we'll all meet him in the air. Um, that's, we'll, we'll look specifically at what that's talking about, but in essence, that's just referring to all of the believers will, get, will be brought into the presence of Christ. Um, it is not referring to a time of that happening, meaning that, you know, uh, the church is taken out before anyone else is taken out. So like I said, you know, as far as where I fall from, from extensive study of Scripture, um, you know, for me, that, that whole timeline, when it happens, when Christ comes back, that's, you know, that's it. It's just all going to happen at once. There's, there's not going to be a, you know, the church gets taken out and then there's some, a time period and then Christ comes back again. It's just when he comes, he's coming. 
in, in the in the dispensationalist idea um, is the idea of there's a rapture and then seven years and then and then the millennial kingdom. Um, but that's that's not what I follow. I don't think there is a seven year tribulation. Um, and we'll look at why. But, it, you know, like I said, there's not a secret rapture. There's not a seven year tribulation. All of this dispensationalist stuff that honestly is the most commonly held belief, especially in the southern United States, but it's the most commonly held belief uh, among a lot of folks today is a very modern creation. Um, it was it was created by a guy by the name of James Schofield in, in the 1800s. Um, and you know, this goes back to what I guess I'm not going to wait till next week, am I? Um, <laughs> Y'all want to know now. Y'all want to know now. Um, Yeah, next week may be too late. If Jesus comes back, you'll never know. That's a good point, brother. Good point. Amen. All right. You got me. You got me. It's kind of like Garfield says, eat dessert first. Life is too uncertain. So I guess I better jump right uh, right to this now. Um, You know, all right. Here's the thing about about that. And I will wait until later to discuss the specifics of it. But... um, in the 1700s and 1800s, you had what was called the Enlightenment movement that really kicked off in Europe, especially among a lot of the, the universities. Academia became very antagonistic towards Christianity. You know, in, in the Enlightenment movement, if you couldn't touch it, taste it, feel it, then it wasn't real. And they wanted to reject all the supernatural and they wanted to reject all the acts of God. And, and so atheism began to really soar um, coming out of especially the European universities, and that eventually began to take hold in America. Well, because of that, a lot of the believers in America then became very antagonistic towards academia, um, meaning that um, if, if you went to seminary, you were looked at with great suspicion. And, and people began to adopt the attitude of, I don't need anything other than my King James Bible, and I don't need to know the culture, and I don't need to know the original languages, and I don't need to know all this other stuff. And, and, and I understand, so that was a, it was a pullback, it was a response from what was going on. And because of all of that, people lost all the original stuff that Revelation was trying to convey, and they began to... Without that knowledge of the background and the culture and the languages and without all of that together, they began to try to figure out what was going on. And so they began to interpret Revelation very literally, which was not meant to be. Uh, it was meant to be taken very seriously. But there's a difference between taking it seriously and taking you know, everything in it literally. And so Schofield um, was the primary guy with the Schofield chain reference Bible um, and others began to... Um, create this theology of the rapture and the seven-year tribulation to follow um, and, and all of this stuff. But like I said, all of that stuff never existed in church teaching and church history until the 1800s. So if you look at the previous you know, 1,600 years of church teaching, you won't find mention of the rapture or anything like that um, in it. So that's where a lot of this stuff came from. And, and so for me... It's not saying, um, you know, those people don't know what they're talking about, but, um, but it's a matter of saying, no, no, if you go back and you look at the original culture and you understand the culture and the language and what the purpose of apocalyptic literature was, then it gives us a very different take on things.
Does that answer the question that you had? Kind of, yeah. Well, I'll try to get into more specifics. We will get into the specifics as we go along. But, but that's kind of where all, that's where all the confusion from Revelation comes from, um, is, is just because these idiots in Europe started, you know, questioning and rejecting everything about Christianity, then we kind of threw the baby out with the bathwater and we rejected all learning and knowledge that was coming from the, you know, places of higher learning. Um, and, you know, and, and I have to say, even I ran into that a little bit when I was getting my call to ministry. Um, you know, people would say things like, well, don't let seminary ruin you. And, and, and it was actually ruined. You know, I was viewed with great suspicion that I wanted to go off and get my master's and, and, and my doctorate, that they were afraid that somehow I was going to come back rejecting Christianity or all messed up and not knowing what the Bible teaches because, you know, I had gone off and got myself educated. <laughs> Just the opposite for me. I came back stronger in my faith than I've ever been. Oh, I went to an awesome seminary. Yeah, where they, you know, the professors weren't afraid to pray with you and worship right in the middle of class. And that was an awesome experience. And not everybody gets that experience. There are some seminaries out there that have ceased being Christian, and I'm very suspicious of them. And there there is no doubt about that. But just as a plug for my seminary, that's also why Asbury Seminary uh, right now is turning out more United Methodist pastors than all the other seminaries combined. Because they teach the Bible and they teach it well. Oh, sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. Any other questions right now you want to ask before I, <laughs> before I move on? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, it's okay. I, I knew when I agreed to teach Revelation that I was sticking my foot into something here. All right. Okay, well, that's Philadelphia. Let's, um, let's go on to the one that a lot of folks focus on, which is uh, the church at Laodicea. Well, no, um, the people that lived in Philadelphia, well, in all these areas, um, were extremely diverse. I mean, now it's Turkish. Uh, but that really didn't come around until um, uh, the Byzantine and then much more so the Ottoman Empire when the Ottomans uh, took it over. That's that's when the Turks really began. But but in this time, uh, people were more uh, Greek, Roman, you know, that that uh, that kind of area. Correct. There are no uh, existing um, of the seven. They're all gone. Right. Exactly. All the ancient churches. Uh, are gone and and only a couple of them still have a, a a modern day city you know attached to them Philadelphia as we just saw was one of them but most of them do not have a modern day city attached to them All right so let's look at Laodicea chapter 3 verse 14 Write this letter to the angel of the church in Laodicea This is the message from the one who is the amen the faithful and true witness the ruler of God's creation I know all the things you do, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were one or the other. But since you are like lukewarm water, I will spit you out of my mouth. And and the Greek says, literally, I will vomit you. Um, it's, It's pretty graphic. You say, I am rich. I have everything I want. I don't need a thing. And you don't realize that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I advise you to buy gold from me, 
gold that has been purified by fire. Then you will be rich and also buy white garments so you will not be ashamed by your nakedness and buy ointment for your eyes so you will be able to see. I am the one who corrects and disciplines everyone I love. Be diligent. Turn from your indifference. Look, here I stand at the door and knock. If you hear me calling and open the door, I will come in and we will share a meal as friends. I will invite everyone who is victorious to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat with my father on his throne. Anyone who is willing to hear should listen to the spirit and understand what the spirit is saying to the churches. All right. You don't want to be Laodicea. Um, this area that um, we call now Laodicea uh, is, is in modern day called Eski Hisar, um, which in the Turkish language means the old fortress. Um, it is located at the junction of two major trade routes. It was located about 40 miles southeast of Philadelphia. It was very near the city of Colossae, which means that I'm sure John was familiar with Paul's letter to the Colossians. Um, it was also located very near to the ancient city of, uh, of Hierapolis. Now, Laodicea was the wealthiest city in all of Phrygia. Um, no problem, no problem. <laughs> there was a, um, there was a huge sheep herding industry, uh, in Laodicea. And, and as a result, there was a huge textile industry, um, and textiles were big. I mean, they didn't have synthetic fabrics back in the day. Everything had to be made from wool. Uh, and, and so that made Laodicea an extremely wealthy place. And it was also a huge banking center. Um, you know, Laodicea is, is Wall Street and, um, and, and every big money place you could imagine kind of all rolled into one um, due to its commercial wealth. You know, one example of how wealthy the city was, Laodicea was completely destroyed by an earthquake in 60 A.D. And they completely rebuilt themselves with absolutely no help from Rome, which was unheard of, um, you know, back in that, back in those days. Um, you know, I mean, they, they did it all. No help. They didn't need it. Um, it's also widely known for its medical school. Uh, it produced many well-known uh, medicines. But their major weakness was a lack of an adequate water supply. Um, Laodicea was, was one of the only cities in the ancient world that was built based on road location rather than supply of resources. Um, you know, as I mentioned, at every other city we've looked at, they all had an acropolis. You know, they all had a big, huge hill upon which they would build a fortress where they could run when invaders came. And all of those acropolises had access to water and food where they could hold out for months against invading armies until the invading army basically ran out of supplies themselves and had to go home. Laodicea was not like that because it was built right at the crossroads of these major trade routes. It had no Acropolis. It had nowhere to run in, in the case of invading armies, and it did not have an adequate water supply. And as a result, the way they stayed safe was through capitulation and paying people off. You know, a, a big army comes to invade them and they just buy them off. And so they were constantly compromising. They were constantly giving in. They were constantly um, accepting this demand or that demand. And in essence, that's what Jesus is saying has happened to the church. 
that the church has capitulated to their culture just as the town constantly did to everyone else. And so they've lost their their love for Christ. And not only have they lost their love for Christ, they don't even think that they need Christ. They, they don't realize how much trouble um, that they're in. There was a large Jewish population. Um, Laodicea was the center for the imperial cult in Phrygia. So it was, it was a constant exercise and appeasement for the Christians of those days. Now, Christ's description here is starting in, in, in verse 14 where he says, um, This is the one who is the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. Um, this, this description of Christ right at the beginning as the faithful one is standing in stark opposition to the faithlessness of the church at Laodicea. Now, their reference, I'll show you some other, some other their pictures in just a moment, and then we'll... Um, this is um, the main walkway. This is one of the sacred ways and the Agora there in uh, Laodicea. And, and, and you can see these brilliant white marble columns. I mean, you can imagine seeing the city just from that at its heyday when it was standing there. I mean, the city, would have, you would have almost had to have sunglasses on to look at it because everywhere you looked, it would have just been brilliantly uh, white, reflecting the sun with a marble. Um, a monstrous amphitheater. That's still there. And then this gets us to um, the reason for the reference to the lukewarmness. This is standing in Laodicea looking north. And six miles to the north of um, Laodicea, so here, was the city of Hierapolis. Now, Hierapolis was well known for its hot springs, and, and it, was, it was a resort town um, where people would come all over to soak in the medicinal springs. Um, the water would flow out, this, this hot, nutrient-rich, mineral-rich water flowed out of Hierapolis, and it flowed over this cliff that was 300 feet high and a mile wide. And as... The water flowed over this cliff, this waterfall. All of the nutrients were leached out of the water. And that left this gorgeous um, area right here, this solid white wall. And that's what you see going on right there. Now, the problem is, once this mineral water flowed out and everything was leached out of the water, the only mineral that was left in the water was sulfur. And so by the time the water flowed from Hierapolis to Laodicea, flowing right by Laodicea, all you had was lukewarm sulfur water. Pretty gross, <laughs> right? That's what he means when Jesus says, I vomit you out of my mouth. I mean, you know, if you can imagine trying to drink a glass of rotten eggs, um, you get the idea. So that's when he's referring to their lukewarmness, okay, is, is a reference to, um, to Hierapolis there. Now, here gives you a, a closer look. There's the cliffs um, there. at the, it's, a, it's a modern day state park uh, there at the ancient cliffs. So that shows you more what it looks like. Now, that's uh, standing up on the cliffs and you can see those tiered pools 
Um, those are the mineral pools that people today still go to, to bathe in, uh, and the water is still flowing. That mineral-rich water is still flowing down uh, off the cliffs. Gorgeous, huh? But you can see all that white calcium carbonate um, that gets leached out as the water flows down the cliffs. Well, as a result of, of this lukewarm water, um, they're just north, six miles, you know, here you had the hot springs six miles north. Well, just south of Laodicea is Colossae. And Colossae was widely known for its extremely cold, pure drinking water. It, it was like Evian, you know, I mean, it was the place everybody would go to bottle their water. So to the north, you had hot mineral water used for healing purposes. To the south, you had extremely cold, pure drinking water. And then at Laodicea, you had nothing but lukewarm sulfur water. Okay, so when Jesus says, I wish you were either hot or cold, it's not a reference to their spiritual temperament. It's, it's a reference to their usefulness. The hot water was useful. The cold water was useful. Lukewarm water is useless. And, and that's the point. So uh, Jesus's discussion of I wish you were hot or cold, but because you were lukewarm, I vomit you out of my mouth. It, it's a it's that's a statement from local geography. Looking both ways. This is one of the aqueducts from Colossae that flowed back to Laodicea. Laodicea was totally dependent uh, upon Colossae and, and other areas around to get them. Uh, water, which was another reason they had to capitulate any time an invading army came, because if you wanted to um, kill the people of Laodicea, all you had to do was knock down their aqueduct, and then they would have no access to any clean drinking water. They would be they would be completely stuck. Okay, so that's um, uh, so it's it's this lack of work. Now the pure the the lukewarm water that was flowing by Laodicea looked clear. So if you were someone who didn't know about the local geography and you just walked by and looked at it, you would have thought, oh, that's good drinking water. As soon as you taste it, you'd know differently in a hurry. That's what Jesus is saying about the church. They look good. They know the right things to do. They speak Christianese. They know how to act like a Christian. But when it comes down to it, they, ha- they don't have the works of a Christian, you know, now works don't save us. We're not saved by works. We're saved by grace. We're saved through faith. But our works are the evidence that we truly do believe in Christ. You know, we don't really love Christ if we don't live out what we say we believe. And and so um, that was his great complaint against Laodicea. They said they believe it, but they don't show it. Now, verse 17 explains actually why this church was so offensive to God. When he says, you say I'm rich and I have everything I want, I don't need a thing. And you don't realize that you're wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. The the people of the church were so well off that they had the best of everything. They were blind to their spiritual condition. You know, imagine pulling into the church parking lot and, and seeing nothing more than Lexi and, you know, Le- that's plural of Lexuses, I guess. Uh, and, and, you know, BMW and, and Expedition Chariots. I mean, you know, they, they had them everywhere. They would have had gold-plated hubcaps. They would have, I mean, they would have had the best of everything. Yeah, that's, that's it, man. You know, th- think of the, the, all the rich playgrounds that you can think of in our modern-day world, and that was this place. You know, you, you couldn't even get into the church if, if you weren't a millionaire. Um, 
this place was loaded. And so the claim of the, the church, the wealth by the church, is their material wealth. But they completely missed spiritual wealth. And, and that's what God is complaining against. Now, Laodicea was really well known for three things. Great wealth, their banking center. A popular eye salve, a medicine that, that they used, that they exported around the world. And the huge textile industry. Those three things. So this is a direct correlation then to what Jesus says. You think you have everything, but you are poor, you are blind, you are naked. Directly slamming what they clung to. Their money, uh, their, their, their eye ointment, and, and their textile industry. You know, and, and so, um, you know, Jesus is, is saying that in their smugness, the Laodicean church thinks that they have everything they need when they should be looking to Christ rather than their own strength. And the stuff that's coming down the pipe uh, later, they're not going to be able to hold up against it with material wealth. You know, they need Christ. Um, and, and so that's why uh, Jesus says, buy gold from me, then you will be rich. Buy white garments so that you will not be shamed by your nakedness. Buy ointment for your eyes from me so that you will be able to see. You know, he, he, he's saying these physical things that you think have made you so wealthy have corrupted you and made you poor. Don't trust in your own strength. Trust in me instead. And, and that's the whole idea. Now, the final uh, verse that I wanted to look at, verse 20. Look here, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear me calling and open the door, I will come in and we will share a meal as friends. I can't tell you how many sermons I've heard preached on that um, as an evangelistic sermon. That is not an evangelistic statement. Jesus is not talking to non-believers. He's talking to believers. Um, he's saying to this church... That they've locked Jesus out. And, and that, um, you know, he's standing there knocking, saying, hey, guys, I'm here. I want to come in. And if you'll just open the door, I'm, I'm there. So Jesus is saying he hasn't given up on them in the church. But, you know, again, this is not a discussion to nonbelievers. This is saying to church people, you've locked me out. Open the door and let me in. And then we'll sit down and we'll have a meal together. We'll fellowship together. Um, so, it, you know, it's, it's a devastating view on the people of Laodicea and the way their attitudes have rejected Christ, even though they claim to be Christian. Sure. Uh, you're, you're exactly right, Bill. And, and really, you know, we can find ourselves in several of these ancient churches. You know, I mean, these ancient churches were not written to be archetypes of... You know, modern day churches, these were real churches with real people with real problems. Uh, but just it goes to show you that the more things change, the more they stay the same. Um, and that just the, the problems that they had back then are the problems we're still struggling with today because people still sin and we still mess up. But we need to heed these words uh, of Christ because it's easy for us, especially in the American church. Um, you know, we don't have to. Fear for our lives when we gather to worship. You know, we're here tonight without worry that someone is going to break in here and, and, and kill us because of our faith in Christ. 
Uh, and as a result, it becomes easy to kind of sit back on our laurels and think we've got it made and take Christ for granted. And that's what some of these churches were doing. And, and Christ is saying that if you take me for granted now, when the bad times come, you won't have a leg to stand on. And all of us are going to face bad times. So let's not take Christ for granted so that when those bad times do come, we'll have the strength we need to make it through. Any uh, any other questions? Yes, sir. That's right. Yeah, they did some amazing architecture back then. That's it. It was amazing stuff. And, you know, they knew it. They were proud of it. Was Paul gone by, by the time that John wrote? Yes, sir. Um, yeah, Paul had probably, you know, from, from best dating of Revelation, uh, late 80s, early 90s. We know that Paul died in 64 A.D. So Paul had been gone about 30 years by the time this it was written. They had lost his influence. Correct. Correct. Well, yeah, you, you had second and third generation churches by this time. You know, you didn't have the original believers who had known Christ personally. Um, you're, you're dealing with, with, with people who heard it from someone who heard it from, you know, from someone who knew Jesus. And so, as is the case, you know, we get really excited about Jesus at first. And if we don't intentionally work at it, well, I mean, it's like a marriage. You know, when you first meet your future husband or wife, you're all pumped up and excited about it. But unless you intentionally work on that marriage every single day, you know, the, the, the romance fades after a while. You know, it doesn't just magically keep happening. Well, the same in our relationship with God. If we don't intentionally work at it every day, we eventually become complacent. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. So next week... Um, Y'all read uh, Revelation chapter 4 and 5 uh, as, as preparation, and we'll begin to look at what worship in heaven is all about. And, and, and we'll move from these pastoral sections of the letter. We'll begin to move into the, uh, the vision uh, part of the letter that John has. So thank you very much, and have a wonderful evening.